Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. The big con on Apple TV Plus tells the story of the largest fraud in the history of Social Security. It was a half a billion dollar fraud that was perpetrated against the American taxpayer. Half a billion with a B. Eric Kahn, uh, C-O-double-N, that's also the name of the movie, The Big Kahn, C-O-double-N. Interesting, clever play on words. Uh, Eric Kahn was the lawyer uh, who was uh, really one of the central players in in this fraud. Uh, The two people who are responsible for revealing the fraud and bringing all of this to light are here with me today. Jennifer Griffith and Sarah Carver worked in the Office of Social Security Appeals. They saw something was amiss. They brought to light a fraud that cost the American taxpayer half a billion dollars. What did it cost them? And how are they doing right now? Take a listen and find out. Here I am with Jennifer and Sarah. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah Carver, Jennifer Griffith, you two are responsible for bringing down the largest fraud in the history of Social Security, a fraud that cost American taxpayers nearly half a billion dollars. Jennifer and Sarah, first, welcome. Thank you for being here. And let's talk about how and why you did what you did. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. People may know they can see uh, the incredible story behind your stories uh, in the Apple TV documentary, The Big Con, uh, which is featured now on Apple TV Plus. That's actually why you're here. I saw that. Um, I called my bookers and I said, please get these women uh, because you really did something that was quite heroic. Let's start at the beginning. The two of you worked in the Office of Disability Appeals. When did you first notice, and I'll start with you, Jennifer, when did you notice something was amiss? Probably in about 2005, there were some cases that were disappearing off of my docket. And as a result, I was not being able to put them in the system properly, and I was getting in trouble for that. Just to kind of put some of this in context, the way it works is that when someone files for disability, American taxpayers, taxpayers here are entitled to disability payments. If you become disabled, part of the taxes that we all pay the government um, from our paychecks go to a fund that is to help take care of us and uh, our fellow uh, folks when they become disabled. So if someone's disabled, they file a claim. If that claim is denied, it ends up in an appeals office like uh, where the two of you worked. So Jennifer, you noticed that you had cases, claims that were not in your office, I mean, that were not where they were supposed to be, and they were landing um, in the files of a Judge Doherty. Why was that strange to you. He was a judge who was responsible for some of these appeals. What seemed strange about the fact that some of these cases were disappearing from your office and your desk and landing on his? What was weird? What's weird about it is because Eric Kahn had such a large practice, we were uh, supposed to assign his cases on a rotational basis so that no one judge would receive more of his cases than another to avoid judge shopping and avoid favoritism to one attorney. 
And so part of our cases were paper and part of our cases were just fully electronic. And so it created an environment that made it very easy for Judge Darby to sort of shuffle things around without really us knowing who did it. Let's fill in a little more. I want to give people a little more flavor about really what was happening in this fraud. Uh, Again, the film is called The Big Con. A central player uh, in this scheme was the Kentucky lawyer Eric Con. And as I understand it, the way this worked, and you point this out in, uh, in the show, I think, Jennifer, you made the point, disability appeals usually took, on average, about 18 months. Disability appeals that Eric Kahn's clients had took about 30 days. And you also noticed that there were appeals that were landing on Judge Doherty's desk that somehow were granted. I think you said that there was uh, one appeal that was granted in about 30 minutes without a hearing. So Eric Kahn has a bunch of clients who are trying to get disability uh, payments his clients end up on Judge Doherty's desk. Those claims end up being processed very, very quickly, unusually quickly, and almost all, always, uh, yes. Uh, people are getting their claims processed very quickly, and there are very few denials. So, Jennifer, why does this raise your antenna? What are the red flags? Number one, it was judge shopping, and that was something that we were particularly instructed to prevent. And... Number two, moreover for me and then later Sarah at a later time, we are physically getting reprimanded and in trouble for these disappearances. So because he was taking them away before we could complete what we needed to complete, it was getting us in reprimanded and potential suspensions and unsuccessful progress reviews. And that's where Sarah came in because she was my union rep and she was representing me in a lot of these like problems that I was having with both the supervisor and the hearing office director. And initially we didn't know that it was Judge Darty taking the cases. And that came a little bit later, but, um, but it, it needs, it necessitated me needing a union rep. So you were getting in trouble because your cases were disappearing. The cases were disappearing because this judge was claiming them so that he could approve them. What was the incentive? Who was getting, who was making the money here, Jennifer? Where were the dollars going? I mean, at the time and even throughout this, we never knew that anybody was getting paid or not paid, but we couldn't figure out what incentive there would be to do that. We knew the supervisor's incentive. Yeah. The supervisors and management have a separate incentive incentive than, say, the judge himself. So there's two separate functioning or three separate functioning unions. And so Judge Darty's incentive was completely different than, say, managerial uh, incentive. And Your managers. When you say managerial, you mean the people who are supervising you. Yes. And so... For the managers, it was about production goals and meeting Social Security's numerical goals. And for Judge Darty, all we could figure was that he was probably getting paid. But again, we had zero proof of that. We didn't know anything about any payments to anybody. Uh, uh, yeah, at that time. So when you're talking about the management's goals, 
again, we should point out that all of this is happening in the context of a big political push uh, in Social Security to make sure that claims are being processed because there'd been a backlog uh, a few years prior. People were like, push these claims through. So people in your office, your bosses and supervisors were getting incentives Right? I mean, don't they get some sort of incentives or bonuses if you process more claims rather than fewer? At the time, we were um, pro- we were like number one, anywhere between number one and number three in the entire um, uh, nation you know, as far as Social Security goes and, and across the board as far as all so- Social Security offices within the United States. I mean, in Huntington, West Virginia, is a very small, small town. So that right there, you know, was really a big eye opener. Because those managers, they were able to profit from that, whether it be financial as far as bonuses, salary, uh, promotions, travel, training, recognition. We would get our office was constantly being recognized by the commissioner of Social Security. And we were getting awards for being that top notch office and, and getting all these cases out. Top notch, meaning you're just clearing the docket, like you are clearing the flow, clearing the backlog. Right. Other offices across the United States were sending Huntington cases, whether it be cases that stem from the um, 9-11 cases. We got a lot of those because they knew that Judge Darty would would get those out. I mean, he did the work of probably three judges. And he would, if that case was aged, say we would get all these old cases that other offices weren't getting out and he'd get a case that was three and four years old and he would get it out the same day that it came into our office. And the management knew that, not just our management, but management up or on up through the social security system. So let's start talking about how things get tricky for the two of you, because Jennifer, you mentioned that you are being reprimanded because your bosses are saying, where are your files going? And as it turns out, the judge is taking your files. There comes a point in time where you, uh, Jennifer Griffith, someone who works in the Social Security Appeals Office, you're not a lawyer, you're not a politician, uh, you're not somebody who's got like guns and money blazing behind you. You went and confronted the judge. Uh, Tell me about that. What happens that you say, you know what, I'm gonna go to this judge's office myself and say something is up, and I, I, I know, I know what's going on. Tell me about that. Well, I think a lot of people think that Sarah and I had a very adversarial relationship with this judge, and and we didn't. We had a very good relationship with this judge up until this point, and Sarah had continued to talk to him even after that. And when I when I go to confront him about what he's doing, he just simply says that he's not, he wasn't aware that it was causing a problem. But then in turn, he then complains to my supervisor about the fact that I've come to him over what he's doing. So he's saying one thing to me, but doing another behind my back. And that just got me in even more trouble with my supervisor. What happened to you as a consequence of the judges complaining about you? Well, their retaliation over the year 2006 and into 2007 were looking back was probably one of the most stressful things I've ever gone through in my life. And, you know, I had three blood pressure medications and two anxiety medications and I lived 
in fear of just walking into that office. Like it was just a war zone. You never knew whether you were going to get brought up for another investigation. You never knew if you were going to get reprimanded. You never knew, like you just didn't know whether you were going to have a job. And um, I did everything I could to protect myself involving the union, involving Sarah and trying to, you know, get it to stop. But there was too much incentive for them to continue what they were doing and, I'm just an employee and they don't really and, care about that. And keep in mind when she began in 2001, when we both began working there, we both received um, uh, awards for our work production. And I mean, usually sometimes two and three awards a year okay. from 2001 all the way up to 2005. And they stopped 2006 whenever we both started reporting. I mean, for, I was a trainer for the new employees on how to use our systems for internal, uh, like the way our processing system work. I trained our judges. I trained employees. And then when we transferred you into were an A list, you, you two were a list star employees. You were not disgruntled people uh, who had an ax to grind when right. all of this happened. Right. And in I fact, mean, and in fact, Jennifer, you mentioned that uh, your doctor said that the stress was going to kill you. It was having a, a detrimental impact on your health. Let's talk about some things um, that happened to you, Sarah, because you were Jennifer's union rep. So as she is making these complaints, she's raising issues uh, with her supervisor repeatedly. She's being ignored. They're being, and not only is she being ignored, but they are now angry uh, it seems that she's making these reports. What is the interaction with you? Uh, didn't some people warn you about getting uh, too close or too involved with this, Sarah? Because you had your own dramas with respect to all of this. Yeah, I was told by um, a couple of employees that had been there for several years prior to me working there that this is the way that they always ran the office. This is the way it's always been, and there's nothing that you can do about it. I started um, reporting for Jennifer and, and sitting in on these, what they would call like investigations, and um, management at that point started doing the same thing to me that they did to her. And this is where all the emails start. Our big year was in 2007 that we have, I mean, there are hundreds of emails. There's probably thousands. It, well, for that one year. Yeah. I mean, there were hundreds. That was our, you know, that was the biggest, you know, the largest amount of emails that we sent that year. And it was setting out, you know, we know what's going on. We know what Judge Darty is doing. This is how he's doing it. And if you guys don't stop this, it's going to come back and hit this office, you know, in the butt. And, you know, it just got, we just kept on and kept on. And then, so then we noticed that each time one of these emails would go out, in turn, one of us would be punished for something. One of us would go through an investigation, if not both. And it just started snowballing. I mean, every time we turned around, they were watching I'm timing whenever, you, when you came in, how your lunch, your, and we made sure that we had to, we had to dot our I's and cross our T's because people were going through the management, had people going through our desk at night when we weren't there. They were trying to find anything. I mean, I was suspended for not numbering a page in a document. And 
the they thing about it was- you for not putting a page number on yeah. a document. Mm-hmm. And another, yeah. somebody told you, uh, I think it's in the, it's in the film. Someone told you, be careful. You were threatened. Correct. Um, I, I've been threatened several times. I mean, I, I was told to kind of watch, watch, you know, watch what was going on because at the time I didn't know the time when the employee knew that management had included this employee into what was going on. They yeah. had other employees within the agency that are our coworkers going through our desks and reporting to Con where she was and when she was going to be doing what. I mean, we had our own coworkers. There was an incident that's mentioned in the big con. Again, folks can see this on Apple TV. Uh, you really should see this. What you had to go through in order to reveal this half a billion dollar scam uh, against the American taxpayer is really chilling. Sarah, there was one incident where you say one of your coworkers took you out. You noticed somebody was filming you from across a bar, and then you came out and your tires were slashed. Yeah, and I've had my brake lines slashed, my tires slashed, um, um, but I I saw, I mean, that's when it kind of really, it really got serious for me is, I mean, I I noticed the guy from across the bar and he literally, he had his cell phone up videoing me. I mean, it was obvious what he was doing. And at the time we were kind of like, I think that, you know, I think that guy is filming us and I put my menu up. And then I put it back down and I picked my phone up and acted like I was going to video him back. And that's whenever he walked out of the restaurant. Um, but yeah, I've been followed. I mean, my, um, even like when I was taking my daughter to cheerleading practice, um, they would sit outside. And I didn't know this at the time, but I did find out um, during right before the Senate hearing from one of Eric Kahn's employees that they would sit on the hill above my house because there wasn't any apparent, like there wasn't a place for them to sit without me noticing. And they would sit on the hill in the woods above my house, waiting for me to come and go and would videotape me and my children. We're going to dig in a little bit into who some of the they were, because uh, some of those people were taken to task for uh, that threatening conduct. You complained a lot, like Jennifer In this documentary, you talk about how you reached out to the governor, you reached out to congressional leaders, you reached out to your supervisors, you reached out to the president of the United States, you reached out to anybody, nobody listened. Finally, a journalist from the Wall Street Journal says, you know what, maybe you're onto something here. What did it feel like when you realized that somebody was finally taking this seriously? We thought, you know, like you said, like, finally, thank God, you know, once th- this story is out, this will all stop. I mean, you would think that because you would think, oh, my gosh, you know, now it's going to be we're going to be investigated and we got to stop this. But that's not what happened. It got worse and they continued. It, it was like the Wall Street Journal. Oh, I mean, even our, you know, our chief administrative law judge. Um, he didn't even take it serious. He just mm-hmm. kind of pulled it off, tried mm-hmm. to pull it off as we were just disgruntled employees. You're talking about Judge Andrus, correct? Yes. Uh-huh. So let's talk about Jeff, uh, Judge Andrus for a moment. Eric Kahn, the lawyer who is at the center of the scheme, Judge Darty, uh, a judge who's involved with the scheme. He, judge Darty is overseen by the supervising judge, who's Judge Anders. 
Judge Anders, Andrus, uh, becomes aware of the fact that you all are looking into this and the judge, the judge becomes a part of a scheme to intimidate you, Sarah. Uh, tell us what that was about. Well, like I said, at the time, I didn't know what was going on, but he had went to an employee there at the um, office who was currently a writer, a paralegal writer, and he basically got her on board with, you know, trying to do his dirty work, you know, let's contact, you You contact, her name's Sandy Neese, you contact Eric's office, they're expecting you to call because he had already made this arrangement with Eric Kahn's office, and you correspond back and forth to his employees and let them know when Sarah will be working at home. Cause we, at the time we were allowed to work at home one day a week and she did. Um, I did get to hear I mean, that. Re- I did get to hear that recording and that's on the podcast to the actual recording. The thing of it is we asked for that recording for years and it went, we, first time it, our we, management said there's, it there's didn't exist. Recording. I, I was really getting paranoid and, I would even through my my union rep because I had to get an attorney through the union was asking I mean official and official documents in one of in one of my their investigations against me because they went after me that that I was filmed not at my work at home day they couldn't catch me leaving so I was filmed this was this this tape was sent in or this recording was sent in to the agency now the documentary kind of you know, this officer, Detective Murray, whoever he was with the office of investigation said, oh, we knew that was a joke. You know, we knew that. We didn't take that serious. Well, yes, they did. My managers took that and ran with it. They, they were going to fire me. This was what they wanted. This was their, you know, golden egg. We're going to get rid of her now. And they just drug me over the coals. They, I mean, they investigated me. They refused to admit. I asked for my attorney asked for any recordings, any documents, any any reports that were made, incident reports. They said there were none. And the inspector general might have not considered it serious because of the misspellings and all of that. But internally within Huntington, West Virginia, ODAR office, they took it very seriously because to them, this was the thing that was going to get rid of her. Let's just uh, make sure people are up to speed with what this scheme was. So the judge was behind the plan to try to get you fired. And the idea was that they wanted to record you out shopping when you were supposed to be at home working on a flex day. So somebody records you in a parking lot as it turns out. Right. So they, they record you in a parking lot they send this to your bosses, and as is pointed out in the documentary series, uh, uh, The Big Con on Apple TV, it's right? You know, it's got misspellings, misspellings on the envelope, but it's like here we've got uh, we've got video of Sarah running around in the parking lot when she's supposed to be at work. And you're right in the documentary and in, in the series, it suggested that they gave it short shrift. Uh, what we learn is that the, the metadata on that disc was from a different day. So essentially, they took a picture of you going to work and then said, oh, this is from an entirely different day and she should be fired. And instead of quickly seeing that the meta- metadata was a fraud and seeing that it was all a fake, they still put you through the ringer um, with that sloppy kindergarten 
yes, bad yes. evidence. That sloppy kindergarten uh, trick still put you through the ringer, and they and still almost got you fired. Yes, and they never even let me know when the end of the investigation um, ended. When they found that there was no evidence, they continued it and made me believe that I was going to be fired. So you know, I went to work and spent the holidays and, and everything in, in this stress of losing my job. And I never did hear the conclusion of it. It just, I mean, all the just, way up until the time you left the agency, they never told you the result of it. Right. You know, so so uh, ultimately the reports that the two of you made, the evidence that you collected, uh, it also bears noting that at a time when I think uh, the Congress was investing this, uh, investigating this. The Office of the Inspector General was investigating this. There was a litigation hold on documents. Documents in your office were being shredded and destroyed, um, which is against the law. <laughs> um, you would think, yeah. You would think. I mean, you would think somebody cared. Uh, no one did. You all are, the two of you are collecting evidence. You're giving it to the journalists at the Wall Street Journal. You're giving it to congressional investigators and you're giving it to the Office of the Inspector General. You two ultimately testify before Congress uh, about this scam. Uh, what was that like? Were you nervous? That was really surreal because the first day, I mean, whenever we arrived there, the night before, we had found out um, from um, two of Coburn's lead investigators, um, we found out that that uh, two of Eric Kahn's employees were there, and we met them the night before, and that's when we were able to, you know, we found out, he said that there's going to be some things come out in this hearing, you're going to be surprised, and and we were. Yeah. Um, when we walked in this room, in this, where before the uh, congressional committee came in, we were told how to use the mics and we look at these nameplates. They had these name tag like things that were going to sit in front of you whenever you testified. And we saw that Eric Kahn was going to testify. We saw that um, Darty and Andrus, that's when it hit us. It yes. wasn't going there. It wasn't, there was nothing to prepare for whenever we do any interview. There's really nothing to prepare. We live this. You mm -hmm. ask us a question, we're going to be able to answer. This is one of the one of a the third of our us. life. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's been it's been 17 years. One yeah. of the two of us will know the answer. We're going to know us. the answer. So there's there's no preparing for anything. But when you walk in that Senate hearing, you know that you're going to be face to face to these people. That's when it kind of you know it wasn't the actual hearing. It wasn't. It was them being in the same room that we were in. It, yeah. it didn't matter that these congressional, you know, senators were all in front of us. There was cameras sitting on the floor looking up at us, and it was exciting. It, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was. It you know, it was very exciting because you know you you felt that you were the one that they were there to, to listen to. You got to speak. You you speak. You got to tell your story, and this was exciting for us. But to know that they're gonna and they did sit there and just stare this cold just. You know, it that was the most, I think, nerve-wracking thing for me. I mean, for me, we didn't, Eric Kahn wasn't in the room when we got there, and neither was Judge Andrews or any of the rest of the people. But we, our testimony went so long that we got up and we turned around expecting to see our attorney who was sitting behind us when we started, and we're face-to-face -face with Kahn and his lawyers, and Andrews is on behind him. And to me, that was the scariest thing for me at that time. Now, I'm not scared of him now, but at that time, 
it was very scary for me. More Judge Andrus than Eric Kahn, but still a little of both. I don't want to give too much away, although the story is a matter of public record, so it's not like there are real spoilers here. The judge served jail time. The judge who was a part, uh, Andrus, the judge who was a part of the scheme to uh, intimidate you, Sarah, but uh, he served six months in jail, but was allowed to retire with a pension. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. And Jennifer, when you left the office, uh, you left in 2007. Your doctor, you were on uh, anti-anxiety medications. Your, your doctor said that the stress was jeopardizing your health. You went from making $60,000 a year to $8,000 a year. Yeah, I because, started Because you tried to do the right thing. Yeah. Are you married? Were yeah, you married, married at the time? Uh, tell us, because we don't hear a lot about this in the, uh, in the docuseries, uh, and, and I, I want to explore this with you too, Sarah. One thing that struck me is that you know, it was so clear the stress that the two of you were dealing with, just trying to manage um, that kind of tumultuous situation, especially when people are coming for you. I mean, I remember there's another part, Sarah, where you talk about a supervisor who was just stationed across from you, no computer, no nothing, just watching you, just looking for you, waiting for you to do something wrong. So we get a sense of all of the stress of that. Jennifer, Talk to us about what this was like for your husband and your children. You're coming home every day being threatened, harassed, and intimidated, not because you did anything wrong, but because you were trying to save the American taxpayers about half a billion dollars. Uh, what's happening in your family life as you're going through this fight? I was just in such enormous amount of stress, and it was affecting my health so negatively. And my husband's just like, you know, my husband has been great through all of it. And um, he's always been very supportive of it, but he's always been, had the attitude of just quit. It's not worth it. There's not a single job on this planet that is worth it. And the last progress review that I had was what forced it. And I just called him on the way home and said, I'm out. Like I, I'm, I'm done. My son and my daughter, oddly enough, the two aren't really ever interested in what I've done. Um, <laughs> that much. I mean, my daughter was born in 2005, which is the year that this started. So she's never mm. known a world where we don't have Eric Kahn in, mentioned in our household or this case hasn't been. Now, my son uh, recently graduated from Marshall University and his uh, major was criminal justice. So in terms of coursework and things like that, he became a little more interested. But to them, I'm just mom. And they know I'm under stress and they know I'm short tempered and they know I'm angry and they know I'm going through something, but they don't know at that time, they didn't realize how big of a deal it was. They do now, but back then they didn't. They just knew that we were going through something. It was stressful. And they knew that I'd left my job. And then less than a month after I left my, I left my job, my husband lost his job mm -hmm. and we damn near lost everything. And, you know, then to not be able to find work, you know, I worked as a paralegal, but our involvement with our litigation affected my employment negatively when the Senate investigators are showing up at your office and OIG is showing up at your office. And, you know, I ultimately lost that last job in part because of this. And 
to this day, I cannot get a job in the legal field. I mean, I went to an interview maybe three months ago where the only question they asked me were related to this case. Not about my skills, qualifications, anything like that. This case and this case alone. When you say you're unable to get a job, uh, do you get the sense that people think that you're just too much of a squeaky wheel? And they mentioned this in the docuseries. The two of you, the finesse, the diligence, the detail orientation, the focus, the bravery that you demonstrated. I, 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 a lawyer with half a brain would be lucky to have either of you, frankly. Sarah, you were a single mom when all of this was happening. And... Right afraid of being fired at any moment, losing your home, not able to support your family, you couldn't quit. Uh, How are you doing? I mean, how was it? Were you on medication? Were you in therapy? How were you as a mom having to come home? You know, Um, know, you've got somebody sitting across from you eight hours a day, staring at you, hoping that she can fire you for not putting a page number on a document. What does that, how does that impact your home life? You know, it was really hard. Um, Yes, I was on medication. I think the only person I really had to talk to was my doctor because my kids, I didn't involve them in it. Um, And we had the same doctor. Yeah, we had the same (laughs) doctor. So it was easy. It was, and she still understands. Um, But my kids were just, I just, I didn't want to involve them. So I didn't have anybody to come home to, to, you know, to vent to, to, you know, someone to say, oh, it's going to be okay you know, I didn't want to lose my home. My husband did not pay me child support and it was just me. And I don't know when I, when I look at everything that I've went through now, I even wonder how I even did it because mm-hmm. they, you know, management, uh, one example, I mean, they, they suspended two weeks before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the two weeks that I would have gotten paid, to go and get my Christmas presents, you know, to finalize my Christmas, I am without a job, you know, without a paycheck. Later, did they have to pay it back? Probably about six to eight months later because, you know, I appealed it. And um, one, because, you know, I showed them so many cases where people had left off page numbers. I mean, that's that's not something that, I mean, and, and they admitted, have you ever suspended someone before? leaving off page numbers and their, their answer was no we have not but you know me yes they did they ultimately offered you a settlement to kind of I'm talking now to uh, you Sarah so Jennifer you left the office in 2007 Sarah they ultimately offer you a settlement because they're trying to get you out of there before the other shoe drops around uh, Judge Andrus and his uh, eventual prosecution you take the deal and leave. Are you comfortable telling us how much money you were able to get from the department as a result of the settlement? I would be comfortable, but they made me sign an agreement saying that I wouldn't. We each received settlements and we each can't talk about the details of those settlements. She left in 2007. So I was there until March of 2017. And so, you know, you know, and I had to endure a I mean, a lot more than what she did. And some of the things, you know, that that they did was, I look back now and I'm just, it, it, it's shocking. I mean, it, it's, it, you know, you're encouraged to see something and say something. But that's just all on paper. 
you know, that's not what they, that's not what they thought that we thought we were doing what we were supposed to. I mean, we would get reminders about if you see fraud, this is how you report it. It tells you the steps to go. And that's not what happened. I mean, they clearly set set an example of me and her both as to what happens to you if you stand up and you say something. Mm -hmm. Something that can happen in certain scenarios um, under... uh, whistleblower protection statutes is that if someone reports wrongdoing and then it turns out that as a result of that report, they save the government, you know, a whole lot of money as you two did. In some cases, they can get some portion of the recovery because it's in, it's in recognition of the long, painful struggle that whistleblowers have to endure Uh, in order to reveal these horrible things that ultimately benefit the public. The revelations that you made possible benefited all of us taxpayers. So there are situations where whistleblowers can get some compensation under those statutes. Did you guys get any whistleblower money? Well, an important point to this is that it's incumbent upon the inspector general to deem you a whistleblower. And they have never recognized us as whistleblowers. So because they didn't deem us as whistleblowers, we weren't entitled to the protections and the benefits that would be received as someone who was actually designated a whistleblower. And that's an important distinction that most people don't understand. So we're not whistleblowers. They never recognized us. I mean, despite three investigations, a Senate hearing, 60 Minutes, American Greed, you know, the Wall Street Journal, uh, criminal and civil cases filed and a documentary. To this day, they have never acknowledged us as whistleblowers. The Office of the Inspector General will not acknowledge the two women whose revelations resulted in the end of a half a billion dollar fraud perpetrated against the American taxpayer, the largest fraud in the history of uh, in the history of Social Security. Your emails, your evidence, your conversations and documents made that possible but they won't call you whistleblowers. Nope. Yeah, Inspector, the Detective Murray won't even talk to us or acknowledge us. I think it's McGill. Is it McGill? I think yeah, it's McGill. it is. It's McGill. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, Detective McGill. Um, he, we've been in the same room even, you know, at the premiere of the documentary, and he wouldn't even come over. You know, it's interesting. There was a, a line in the docuseries And I think it's one of the judges, not Andrus or Doherty, but I think another judge who's talking about a conversation with Judge Doherty. And Judge Doherty's response to, you know, his uh, processing all of these claims so quickly and without uh, kind of really giving them the due diligence that was required was that, I think there was a line where he said something uh, like, uh, you know, these other judges act like it's their own money. And I think his point was, it's government's money, so I'm just going to give it away. You save the government a bunch of money and the government's mad at you. I mean, yeah. that's what it sounds like. Yeah, and that was only the beginning. And it was it so mishandled. Yeah, it was so mishandled. And they really just kind of really retaliated toward more. us at the, at more, even toward the end. What? Yeah. What was the... So toward the end, now you both are gone, or at least if you're not completely gone yet, uh, Sarah, you've got one foot out the door, but how do they continue the, reta- uh, the retaliation? 
What I'll let you explain when we went into uh, because it's when we 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 went into this like a QTAM lawsuit, which is what mm. you were talking about. It's and that's it's kind of really difficult. It's, it's complicated. Complicated. It basically the importance of the QTAM lawsuit is that the government you're filing suit on the government's behalf of fraud, and they have to agree to intervene in the case and take up the matter and continue to investigate the case and ultimately prosecute the case. That didn't happen for us. So we were on our own. And they knew that it would be very hard for us because of the way Social Security cases are identified by their Social Security numbers. And that's something that you can't produce. So you can't say case John Doe, Jane Doe, Jill Doe, frauds in these cases because you would have to give their social security number. Mm-hmm. And it's it's impossible to prove without them intervening. And then we continue in this litigation for seven years. And we ultimately won. And they, I mean, they intervened right at the fifth year. At the end. When, right at the end. When the statute of right limitations. About time, right about time criminal indictments were coming down is when they decided to enter. But they went at that point. Yeah. And they entered into an agreement, our attorney and the, was it Department of Justice basically? Yeah. Entered into an agreement that anything that was left over of We would be entitled by the virtue of the fact that we had a judgment to receive a percentage of what they recovered. But then we did something else to make them even matter. And that was that we discovered that all of the claims files that we had been told were destroyed were in fact not destroyed. And they were sitting in Mr. Khan's office. And, and they knew that they knew these files were there and all these claimants were losing their benefits because they couldn't produce their medical records um, back at the time that they originally filed for disability. You had to show not that they were disabled now. They had to go back several years. And they said, well, we gave those records to Eric Khan. And the government said, well, we don't have those records. Um, if you can't show that you were disabled back in 2001, then you're out of luck. You're out of luck. And but, you got to pay us back. And we and we went in Eric's office and, um, and found those files there and sent them to the claimants, a lot of the claimants, this Ned Pillersdorf. We sent those pictures of those files. Well, and, and we, there was a reporter that was also yeah, present. Yeah, yeah, with us. And... Um, so then the Department of Justice told our attorneys to back off. Yeah. And they got mad at that point. We continue to investigate everything from the conditions of his plea agreement, which is a whole separate story. Oh, my gosh. To the conditions of like, everything that got paid out of his plea agreement was just the most ridiculous thing you'll ever I mean, see. You would never think that a criminal on home confinement would get money for his vitamins, for church contributions church he never even went to and his immunizations that he needed to run that he needed to go overseas the government paid for that wow they were paying his rent his utility bills his child support the uh the the his story as folks will learn when they watch the docuseries has some interesting twists and turns um i won't share them all here but 
Uh, and a lot of tragedy for a lot of people. People went to jail. There was an attempted suicide. One of the perpetrators of all of this died in jail. But let's talk about what happened to these clients, because what you're alluding to is that once this scheme was revealed, and you know, and let's not forget, yeah, some of these people were not legitimately disabled, and there were folks who were getting money that shouldn't have, but there were also some people who were legitimately disabled. And once this scheme was revealed, the government put the kibosh on all of their payments, and then even made some of them, said, you're going to have to pay it back. And then enter uh, the heroic lawyer, uh, Ned Pilledsdorf, I think, I hope I didn't just butcher his name, um, who worked with a number of other lawyers around the country, and as I understand it still is, uh, to try to help those people who are uh, legitimate and deserving claimants get their money, get their benefits reinstated, and not have to pay the government back. You know, before we go, and thank you both for being so generous with your time, I want to just ask you both why you did this. When you look back on it, and I'll start with you, Jennifer, was it worth it? All of this took place at tremendous cost uh, to your health, your mental health, your physical health. Uh, it was hard. Two questions. Was it worth it? And why did you do it? Um, I don't know if it was worth it but I don't think I could live with myself if I hadn't done it. Like if I knew everything that I know and hadn't gone the, what I thought was the appropriate route, that would not be a good example for my kids. It wouldn't, and I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. I mean, Sarah and I were both paralegals. And so we understood what that meant and we understood the law and we understood that not notifying the appropriate parties, we were technically on the chopping block and I don't know if it was worth it considering everything that I lost, but I'm happy that I did it. Um, it was the right thing to do. When you back someone in a corner and you threaten their livelihood and you threaten their very, you threaten their ability to pay for their house, you threaten their ability to pay for their car, you threaten their ability to feed their family, you come out swinging. Most people do. Um, I'd like to think most people do. Maybe we did more so than other people would, but that's what it amounts to. You were threatening my way of life and you were threatening my family by doing what they were doing. And I felt like I didn't have a choice. I had to fight and I fought as long as I could until I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. And then things have never been the same since financially. And so that's really hard. I mean, that's really, really hard to deal with. Cause we both, we both enjoyed our job. Yeah. I mean, we liked working, um, working for the social security and, you know, knowing that they don't want, they don't want employees in there that do anything more than push those cases through. And not only that, to know that your community of legal professionals do not recognize what you did as something good. And you can never work in the legal profession again in this area because you did something that was right. Why did you do it, Sarah? Well, she basically summed it up. I mean, it, you know, it was the right thing to do. Um, do I regret my decisions? I can say no. I mean, my daughters who are, you know, now, you know, late 20s, early 30s, have two daughters. I think that um, they look up to me. Um, they are proud of what I did. And to me, that means everything. You know, and they didn't really even understand until this documentary came out and, and 
have been asking questions what their mother actually went through. And now that they're, you know, one of them's a mother and one's getting ready to be a mother, understand now how hard it is in, in life, making it literally on your own, raising two kids um, and having that single income, you know, what I actually went through. I would hope that most people wouldn't do it, but I would hope that there would be more people out there that would do it. And I think that there probably would be if there were more protection protections for whistleblowers. Yeah. I was going to say this. Uh, I saw the docuseries and was completely blown away by your strength and your heroism. I think that in this day and age, especially, you know, with all of these keyboard warriors and everybody's got a tweet and everybody thinks that they're an expert on this, that, or the other, people talk a lot, but not a lot of people do. And even fewer people do when it's, when it's going to cost them what it cost the two of you. So I'm just going to say this. You honor me by being here with your time. You two are American heroes, and people should know what you did. They should know what you sacrificed to do the right thing. And hopefully it's a reminder um, that good things, that it does work out. You know, Jennifer, I, I know that things still may be uncertain. Uh, it may be for you too, Sarah, but I'm going to say this. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm going to pray for you. I hope that everybody listening um, is believing that the rest of your journey will be easier and better and that you get the rewards and the honor that you deserve. So that's all Thank I got. Thank you, you so much for being here. Thank that you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you.